Welcome to the Duet Partner Podcast. My name is Nylon. At Duet, we pride ourselves on being the original studio management software for independent music teachers who want to focus on nurturing students, not running a business. Our dedication to teachers remains unwavering. Music is our passion and music teachers are our heroes. In a world that can seem heavy and overwhelmed with challenges, music is the great antidote. Teachers are the enablers, the incubators of future artistic expression. At Duet, we do everything we can to encourage your work, treat you with dignity, and express our gratitude for what you give the world. Striving to be a great teacher is a lifelong pursuit. And at Duet, we want to be your partner for continuing education along the way. This podcast will introduce you to your peers and the masters in your industry so that you can learn and be inspired just as you inspire others. I'm very excited to be here today with Malia Morris. Malia is a performing artist based in the San Francisco area. She's performed professionally for the past decade around the United States in regional theater productions, plays, and staged concerts. She has an active voice studio where she teaches private voice, workshops, and masterclasses to students from around the world. Dedicated to the study of vocal pedagogy and voice function, Malia is consistently engaged with training and mentorship with leading experts in the field of vocal pedagogy. You can find her along with 150,000 social media followers on Malia Voice Studio via TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. Malia has a master's in dramatic arts from Harvard University, where she graduated with honors and a thesis prize for her research on Broadway director Diane Paulus. Thanks so much for being with us today on the Duet Partner Podcast, Malia. We're excited to have you. Oh, I am so excited to be here. Thank you. So we'll start with uh, the same sort of questions that we ask all of our our, uh, podcast guests initially. So tell us a little bit about your musical training as a child and some of your early memories as as a student of music. So I think my first production was when I was a few months old. I was in a production of Scrooge. <laughs> and so that was yeah. really my first experience on stage. And I really have been performing ever since my grandparents have a theater in uh, Utah. So that is where I really kind of cut my chops and gained my experience. They have a performing arts school. It's now a performing arts center in Centerville called Center Point Theater. So yeah. – uh, it's just in a lot of ways feels like it's part of my DNA. So it's been something that I've been doing for a really long time. And, you know, outside of that, you know, studying it in college, which I somewhat rebelled against, I ended up starting in musical theater. And then I actually graduated in sociology before returning to dramatic arts in my master's degree. I sort of felt like when I got to college, I I felt like, ah, I've, I've been doing this for so long. I feel like this is just normal everyday life, part of the family business. So I wanted to stretch my brain in other ways. And I'm actually really glad glad that I studied something else because I use it all the time in my teaching. Like understanding the study of people has been super helpful in that way. So um, I'm really passionate just for music educators to not look at their other training as you know, derivative or a deviation from what they do, but how we can utilize all of those things in our teaching and in helping our diverse clientele. 
Did you actually study voice when you were growing up? I know as the daughter of a voice teacher myself, um, sometimes there's, there's conflicting viewpoints on when to start children on vocal training. It's not like, you know, a, a, a string Suzuki player that needs to start at age three or something like that. So what what's your experience in that? So I didn't take ongoing voice lessons until I got to college. I took classes here and there. Uh, I think I kind of fell into sort of that like genetic gap of like I was naturally a quote good singer. So uh, there was this tendency to believe that what I was doing came naturally and therefore like there might be some tweaking, but we didn't really need to work on it, which was in some ways a disservice to me because it in the early years like limited my growth and made it difficult getting into college because there was, you know, a bit of a, a lag that way. Um, in terms of just like from the anatomical side of teaching children uh, when they're young, there is a lot of like, I think, variance just in terms of what the needs are of the child. Um, what are they pursuing? Are they pursuing a, a professional career? Is it something that's vocational? I mean, we know that like the thorax doesn't completely start developing until they are into puberty. So there is a sense of like how much manipulation can we have over the instrument if it's not developed? You know, you hand someone a violin and it's developed. It doesn't have to develop anymore, right? Uh, so part of that is, you know, I think there's room for variance on that. I don't know that it's a hard and fast rule and it's just flexibility with it. Yeah. Were any of your family members your teachers growing up? How did that how did that work yeah. out? So both of my grandparents were music professors. So both of them were, uh, you know, running the theater. They also had a performing arts school. So yeah, I was absolutely taking voice from them or just, you know, sometimes I would do random side projects. And so I would get, you know, voice teachers that would help me in high school or, um, you know, auditioning for something. I was doing professional theater you know, I'm trying to remember, maybe from 12 on, just in other different regional theaters beyond the one that my my family had. So when you would do projects like that, I would work with different teachers just depending on that. But most of that really was not based on the singing so much, I think as more in terms of like the application of like, what is the goal? What are the motivations? What are you trying to get across? Because again, you know, in some ways with younger singers, you are anatomically limited in terms mm -hmm. of what they can achieve. Uh, so it's not that that's a limitation, rather that it's an awareness of like having reasonable expectations of what children can achieve with their voice or adolescents can achieve and not holding them to the same standard that you would an adult matured singer, you know, past their 30s. Yeah, yeah. So you took a detour in college, not sure that you wanted to make this the family, the family business your own <laughs> right. profession. So tell us a little bit about your journey to back to that decision. You obviously returned to it in graduate school. When did you actually decide that you wanted to, you know, both teach as well as perform? Oh, so those are like t two separate journeys. I think when I, uh, so, I mean, really the truth of it is I, I followed my husband to Harvard Law School and I had finished my degree and I was teaching theater, uh, musical theater. And I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And I thought that I wanted to go back to school to get a degree in vocal performance. And so I auditioned for a couple colleges and I ended up, you know, landing at Harvard. And it was the best program that could have worked for me because what the thing that I felt like I was personally missing in my undergrad was I really wanted to use my brain and I also wanted to perform. And I think that Performing obviously uses your brain, but because I'd been doing that for so long, I wanted to use my brain in different ways. 
So I think in a lot of ways, just looking at like motor learning and brain development, I actually strengthened my skills in graduate skill in graduate school because I was using my brain academically. I was, you know, writing a lot. Um, I was researching a lot in the field of dramatic arts, which just like that's just Harvard's way of saying like theater music. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they have to make it difficult. But yeah. um, but so yeah, it was a nice way to sort of have both the performance classes, but also be really academically involved with a, a project and feel really committed to, you know, academic excellence. So in that way, it was a really great experience for me because I realized how much I loved research and I realized how much I, I loved reading academic journals. So now you know, with voice teaching, especially uh, the continuing education that I I do all the time, a lot of that is being able to read scientific articles and to keep up with what's going on in my field. So I think in that way, again, just broadening your horizons in terms of what you think of as applicable to your field and realizing that there are just so many things that can be broadly applied to your given field if you just are creative enough to think about it. Love that. Yeah. Some of the best teachers that I've had or my family members have had really do understand the instrument, the technique, the science behind it, right? Not just the technique of playing, but like, you know, how the sound is produced from whatever instrument we're talking about. And and I know that you're, you know, you, you're a real expert in that. So that's, that's a great, great point. Tell us about your studio now. Um, how big is it? Where, where are your students? Um, I know I read in your biography there that you teach a students from around the world. So how does that work for you? Yeah. So COVID was sort of a nudge in the direction of teaching online. Previous to that, I was not teaching at all. Like it scared me. I thought, how am I going to get students around the world or anywhere, even in my community to come take an online lesson? So previous to COVID, I was teaching, I had a teaching studio, but Interestingly, in January of 2020, I cut down my studio because I was going to be performing a lot that year. So I knew that I wouldn't have as much time and then COVID happened. So it had actually ended up being a, a good thing because had I tried to keep my full studio during COVID with suddenly the needs of my partner working from home and my children being at home, it would have been you know, difficult to manage. So COVID really kind of gave me the nudge to be teaching online. So I still am teaching completely virtual. Uh, completely. Every, completely virtual. So bef before that, I was teaching only in person, and now I'm teaching virtual. And the big reason for that is that I just have clients now from all around the world. So it ends up being really beneficial that way. And I think kind of like maybe the industry, industry secret that people did not realize was that previous to COVID, I had been working with my master teachers through Zoom and other you know resources because they're all across the country. So I think the reality is people were already doing this, but it just became more of a standard now of like how widely applicable is this? And it is true that you do lose some things when you're working online, but I think that that is focusing on, I think the cons in a way that the positives in many ways outweigh the cons. When you're teaching someone over a computer, I'm not focused on accompanying. I'm not focused on anything else in the room. I'm only focused on them. And by virtue of them watching themselves, they pick up on things that normally they would not pick up on. You know, they're watching the way they breathe. They're watching the way that their face moves. They're looking at what's happening in their body in ways that even if you have a mirror in a classroom, they're usually not watching it the whole time because they're looking at you, right? Yeah. So I think it's leaning into the ways in which we actually gain a lot by having 
this environment. And two, you know, people can do a lesson anywhere. I've t- it's not ideal, but I've taught lessons to people, you know, in cars or, you know, on a vacation at their lake house or, you know, w- whatever it is. So I think it allows this sort of flexibility and freedom uh, that way. But as far as like the size of my studio, it's always fluctuating. So I feel like I always have at least between like 20 and 30 students that are kind of like cycling in and out. And just depending on, you know, my own personal needs with my family or like my performing or administratively with my business, it just depends on in a given week, like how many, how much availability I have that week, especially with like my existing students that I've had for a while. So it's just kind of always in flux, which can sometimes be, I think for some people really scary to have a flexible schedule. I find that especially with younger generations, they like flexibility. Like it's ideal to have students that come every week. And I think those students undoubtedly make more progress just because it is a more habitual thing. But the reality is that people have busy schedules. Like we're usually all pretty tied up in something. So having the flexibility to have people be like, I I had someone just message me right before saying, I have a project. Can we get together on Tuesday? And so I said, you know, here's my availability. Here's the times that I have available. So I don't know that there's like a one size fits all when it comes to building a studio. I think there's a lot of different ways, depending on the needs of the person to, you know, to make that, to make that work for you. And also too, like I have some hard and fast rules. I don't teach on Fridays. Um, and I also don't teach past 5 PM. I used to, and, and that does limit some availability for people. But what, for me, what it did is it, it made me a better teacher because I wasn't constantly feeling like those later lessons in the day I was running to them going, Oh, like I'm so tired. You know, my kids are home. I've, I've been doing all these things. And then I've got to jump back into teaching. So, I don't think people need to feel like their studio hours or their studio needs to look like other people's studios. It's a really individual process of figuring out what works best for you. Yeah, we did a, a podcast recently with one of our duet teachers named Mage Lockwood who talked about that idea of setting boundaries um, and avoiding burnout, as you said. Yes. So I love that idea that that you you know one of the one of the great benefits of teaching uh, and being in this industry is that you can craft, you know, a, a, a life that is convenient to your values and to what you want to get out of it. It is very flexible in that way. Um, do you have any particular like teaching philosophy you subscribe to or are there your guiding values as a teacher? I mean, teachers are so influential in shaping people's visions of themselves, not, on, not only as musicians, but, you know, with your psychology background, it sounds like you, you bring that up every once in a while in your teaching. What, what guides you in those ways? So I think especially with the emergence of motor learning theory with the brain and how we learn, especially as artists, really changes the game. Uh, I look back to the way that I was trained in undergrad and in grad school, and it's very different now. Like we take approaches in terms of understanding just how people learn. Like, for example, if somebody is getting frustrated Mm -hmm. with a concept, it's more beneficial for them that we either change tactics or we set it aside as opposed to like, we're just going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing until you're at your breaking point because the brain is constantly monitoring, you know, monitoring all these different inputs, right? It's not only trying to process in the brain what we're asking to do, but it's trying to translate into that into a physicality. So the reality is that's not just a straight linear line, right? That's based on your sleep. That's based on stress. That's based on, you know, the present cortisol in your body. That's based on uh, how much have you been practicing? It's based on all these different factors. 
So when somebody comes into the studio, I think it's incredibly important for the teacher to get a feel for how the student is feeling. When a student comes in my studio, depending on the answers that they give me, it entirely shapes the course of the lesson. So if they're struggling and they're having a hard day, you know, they've been working hard, or if it's a student uh, in college and they're struggling with school, that is not a day from a neurological perspective to, to work on their most challenging repertoire. That is a day for us to allow their brain and their muscle patterns to work together and do things that they love, like picking music that they are successful at, picking things that they know that they will, you know, succeed and leave, you know, having a positive experience. And so really, I think, keying into creating positive neuro experiences for students so that they don't feel like they leave being unsuccessful. Like one of the things that I've taken away from my speech language pathologists that I work with with students who have pathologies is that we we work on that like one thing that they do really well and then we build around that. So I think as teachers, that's a really critical part of not only creating success in our studio in the sense that we have students that return, but also for them feeling success because like nothing is better, right, than word of mouth, like people who have worked with you and they're like, I found success. So recognizing that one success is in very different variations. There's different flavors to what success looks like, but also recognizing that just what we bring presently to the studio, I think especially right now during this pandemic, that that's going to fluctuate. And so as teachers, we have to be not psychologists or therapists, you know, unless you're licensed to do so, but that we can really meet the demands of our job in flexible ways and not be like, well, this is what I think we should work on. And this is what I think you should do today. Rather like, well, here's what we, I think is possible for you today. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Certainly the teachers in my life have been the sort of small T therapists, <laughs> you know, as you said, not, not, not trained social workers, but um, they do have such a pos- such an important role in our lives and help how we think about ourselves. So I love that really positive approach that you take. Let's um, shift gears a little bit here now and talk about uh, the the subject of our discussion today, which is how to use social media to create an online presence. And I mean, we could talk about so many of the things you've already brought up in our conversation, Malia, because you're obviously you know incredibly skilled and and um, and experienced, and you've done so much research in your area. But but this is this area of social media is also an area in which you excel. So, you know, many, many of us these days and many of the teachers that are listening use social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok for personal communication. I know I do. When we keep in touch with family and friends and keep tabs on the brands and influencers we like, um, we're using these platforms sort of for our own uh, consumption. But only a few people have mastered how to use social media to grow their music teaching studios, and you are one of them. So you have 3,600 followers on Instagram and 150,000 followers on TikTok. So you are using social media to increase the value of your studio and your value as a teacher and the demand for your musical instruction. So let's talk about how you do this. Um, I'm excited to dive into this with you. How did you first realize that social media could be a tool for you in building your studio? Was there sort of one particular catalyst or had you been a personal consumer of social media and at some point recognized its professional capabilities? Tell us about that, that discovery. 
I wish I had some like grand story that led me to it, but the the truth of it is once we went into lockdown, I had all this available time <laughs> uh, that I started thinking about it. And my husband for years had been like, you should create, you know, an online business and and maybe create more of a, a platform for it because the truth is all of my business for the past decade has just been word of mouth and I've never had any issues. I've always had, you know, a busy clientele. Uh, just because, you know, people know me or they recommend me to someone. And so I haven't had to go online. Uh, So what this did is it gave me kind of the brain space to sort of conceptualize what that would look like. And so I went into it not knowing anything and just sort of figuring it out as I went. So essentially, I talked to some friends who had social media businesses and just sort of gleaned information that I thought would be helpful. And I just completely jumped (laughs) head first in. So I remember, I still remember, you know, TikTok, I did not know anything about TikTok at the time when I was on there. Now there's like tons of, you know, voice teachers and and people on the platform teaching. But when I was on there, there really wasn't. So there was, you know, a few teacher, handful of teachers on there. And I popped on and thought, okay, well, I'm just going to, you know, try this. And, And it grew really quickly. I think I grew... Within like a matter of like four months, three months, I got 100,000 followers. But I think that that platform lends itself in just the way that the algorithm works. It kind of lends itself to uh, quick like followers, I think, in a way. So it's funny because I have so many followers on TikTok, but like I prize my Instagram followers so much more Mm -hmm. because in many ways it's more hard fought. Like to get followers on Instagram is just – much harder. Like, and I think universally, even my friends, my friends that have like huge YouTube followings and they found the same thing that like their the Instagram tends to lag. And I think that's still because Instagram is in many ways geared towards like cooking or home improvement or lifestyle blogs. So to use it for music is, is in some ways different. I don't know that it, it is a complete crossover, but people are making it work all the time. So, you know, I'm so proud of those 3,600 followers because yeah. they're the ones that I interact with the most, honestly. Um, but but yeah, so just recognizing that there's like differences in in the ways that you can use the platform. And I don't think that there's like one way to approach how to use them. Yeah. Tell tell our, our listeners a little bit more about TikTok or about the different platforms. Um, specifically, like you'd mentioned that TikTok, you know, you just kind of looked at TikTok and decided that that's where you would start. What what was different about TikTok that it attracted you to it initially? So TikTok is nice because it's really easy to use. Like you can film an, a video in 60 seconds. It does not require a setup like YouTube does where you have to have lighting and cameras. I mean, you you can just literally, you know, make a video and post it. And also I think it lends itself to now it's it's changing a little bit in terms of like videos, especially the US market has grown exponentially on there. So you have brands that are coming on and making like slicker videos. But in one way that TikTok is great is because it is so informal, meaning that like there is not an expectation that you can have a viral video for something that's completely informal and does not look professional in a way that on Instagram, you know, there's this kind of sleek branding that people tend to want or or a look or aesthetic that, you know, matches. For example, you have people who have their Instagram profiles where it looks, you know, harmonious, like it's all aesthetically the same. And so in the beginning, I was trying to do that because it's like, well, that's what everybody else does, right? Like, that's what I should do. And then I realized, like, how often do I actually go to Instagram accounts and look to see if it looks Mm -hmm. aesthetically the same? I, I don't care. What I care about is if the content applies to me or is interesting. So, uh, 
I think in that way, TikTok is just easy and it's informal. So I think that's why it applies to people. And there's this belief that it's mostly young people. That is just not true. There are a ton of young people on the platform. There are a ton of adults. Like I think most of my inquiries on TikTok come from adults. So I think the reality is that there are just, yeah, there's a more diverse amount of people on there than people like to think. As far as Instagram goes, again, it is harder to build a following on Instagram. It's been my experience anecdotally and just with other friends that have similar businesses. Uh, YouTube is kind of its own thing as well. Just depending on the algorithm, you know, if you hit the things that interest you, I'm so bad at YouTube because I don't want to set up video like cameras and lights. And I'm like, that feels so not worth my time. And I think that that's where it's hard, especially I think if you're going to use social media, you know, figuring out what your goals are, because I figured out last year, once things started to kind of become more normal, that I didn't want to be a content creator. I still really like teaching. And so doing juggling both can be really tricky. So I think finding the platform where you feel like you can be most successful in terms of like, how can you schedule it? Is it something that you'll do regularly? Um, For me, I found that YouTube was too much work. And so I just would repost uh, in TikTok stuff that happened. I would just kind of repost and make collages. And I haven't even done that for several months, but it still grows, even though it's sitting there, <laughs> like, I'll, you know, it, it just kind of does its thing. But then TikTok and Instagram just seemed like the, the two that I wanted to focus on. And even more recently, like I spend most of the bulk of my time on Instagram. So yeah, I think that it can change and flow. And I don't think that there's really, I mean, I think if you're talking to a brand strategist, they're a str- strategist, strategist, <laughs> they're going to tell you, um, you know, pick, certain days a week that you post. Like I have friends that have done this, like pick certain days a week that you post and and be consistent and do all these things. And those things certain, certainly work. I think I'm sort of in support of do what works for you because the reality is people can recognize if something feels branded or if it feels real. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that advice that you pick pick the platform that works with your style because it's true. They're, they are all very different. And um and, you know, depending on the goals of the social media engagement, what the teacher wants to get out of their social media engagement, each platform offers something different. Well, how did you discover what kind of content was going to get that fast attention on TikTok? You, was it- you know, it's funny because my husband, he was always like, have you seen these react videos where people <laughs> react to people singing? Which I would always say, oh. I do not care at all about reacting to people singing because it's so irrelevant, right? Like what is good or considered good or bad is so subjective to the eye of the, the listener, the ear of the listener. So what I started doing was voice reacts where I would talk about anatomy. I would explain to people like what they were doing, like, oh, do you hear how they make that sound? It sounds to me like they're retracting their tongue to create warmth, you know, in the vocal tract. Um, so just explaining anatomy. And at the time, now there are, I think, more teachers who do that. But at the time, there was nobody. I was pretty much it. And so I think mm. a lot of people, it appealed to them because they were like, oh, I I didn't know. Or they would, they'd say, I just realized I do that too. Or, you know, the way that they shape their, their mouth, the embouchure, or like the vocal, explaining how the vocal tract works or uh, challenging myths on singing. Like we don't quote, sing with the diaphragm, right? We use the diaphragm on inhalation. On exhalation, we sing. So the diaphragm is working, but we don't, we can't actively manipulate what the diaphragm is doing, right? So things like that where just kind of demystifying things that a lot of people, you know, believe or are taught or, you know, well, well well-intentioned beliefs, but 
uh, that's how I used TikTok was to do vocal racks. But the, the funniest thing is the ones that get the most views, you wouldn't make any sense. Like they're the ones where I like, I'm really emotional, obviously, because I'm, you know, musical theater, I'm a performer, I'm very like, you know, emotional that way. But uh, I think I've posted a couple where I talk about how just the brain interacts with song and why it impacts us neurologically and why we feel connected to music. So I'll explain those. And those are usually the videos where like I tear up and I'm like, I'm tearing up. Like, it's so beautiful. Like, look at the sound they're making, you know? And those are the videos that go viral and get millions of views. And it's like so random. I'm like, who would have thought that people want to see me react crying to someone, you know, singing in a 15 second clip? Yeah. But it's interesting because it sounds like it. what you're doing is more substantive than what, you know, I think most people associate with TikTok, which is the, the funny choreographed dances and things like that. Like, like I, I wouldn't have naturally thought of doing any sort of scientific, you know, um, anatomical lesson on TikTok, but you really bucked that trend and it, it worked. And that's fantastic. Um, how much work do you put into these posts? Um, you said you like TikTok because it is more casual. It is more informal. You can just you know, start your camera, but, but tell us about the the process of making one of these videos. When I make a video, I would say on average, it probably takes 10 to 20 minutes to make one single video, which I think is a lot faster than most people who are doing a YouTube, depending on if you're having an editor or having someone who, you know, who's doing all that for you. Usually the bulk of that time is, you know, for me, checking any references, making sure that what I'm saying is actually true. So I I will literally go look up the study and make sure uh, like one would be like the myth that dairy is bad for the vocal folds. So I'll make sure like I have my studies, you know, intact before I post it so I can reference them. Um, So just checking information, uh, you know, cross posting it on Instagram that it usually takes about 20 minutes to do it. And Previous to maybe the last like six months, I had it, you know, I was doing it daily. And then I really kind of started to taper off, especially as like my studio changed and I was working more and things were getting more back to normal. So I'm, I'm not as active on social media as I used to be. And I think that that is where, you know, thinking critically about what is your reason for engaging with people? Uh, I wasn't looking to build a huge studio because I already had clients. I was looking to kind of, you know, maybe spread information and also to create an online presence, truly, to just like have kind of a brand for myself and for my business. And so those are really my goals. So in that sense, growth for just the sake of growth became something that didn't feel like it was worth the investment. So I became more tailored towards Instagram because I felt like I got better engagement there and it helped me connect more with the goals of my studio. As opposed to TikTok, you know, you get people that kind of come through and you get followers or you lose followers. And and um, I, I kind of feel like the reality is I'm like, oh, I hit 150,000 followers. I feel good. <laughs> like I, you know, I could keep growing. I, cu- I could keep, and I'm surely there are other voice teachers who have, you know, much larger platforms. Um, it's the reality of like how much time do you designate to it? And for me, it felt like it wasn't worth the amount of time to keep posting habitually every day yeah. uh, because then my needs changed. Suddenly, you know, restrictions and life changed. So I thought, okay, well, now we, we can pivot. And there was this great post today by somebody who posted that my business is not based on Instagram and it's not like beholden to it. Meaning that I think, you know, when you use these platforms, you get the sense of like, if I'm not creating content all the time, I'm failing to capture my audience. But 
you know, I took off almost two months this summer as I traveled with my family and was only working sporadically. And I came right back and had immediate engagement because I think the reality is if what you're doing is authentic and true to you, then people respond to it. Like I don't – have you seen those videos where people like point to things? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like no hate to that at all. I don't do that. So I'm like – I actually made a video this week talking about the benefits of singing and how it actually changes the body. And one of those was like they they did a study where they looked at singers and they found that if they looked at their their saliva before and after they sang, they found that if they were just singing, you know, karaoke or having fun, that they had less cortisol present in the body in their saliva after they sang. So there's all of these, you know, lung, how it helps the lungs or the brain or people with dementia, all of these different things. So I was talking about, you know, all these different ways that it impacts uh, the way that we feel. And I made a list of of those reasons. And I said, is this where I point in the air? you know, random things because I don't do videos like that. And there is no shame to people who do. I It just feels very inauthentic to me. Just like dancing videos don't work for me or um, videos about my personal life. Like I do not merge my personal life on my social media at all. In fact, I posted a picture recently of my kids on my social media with like little smiley faces over their face. And I had so many friends that messaged and said, oh my gosh, I had no idea that you had kids. <laughs> you know, yeah. So I, I don't think I don't, again, I don't think there's a one way to do this. I think you can choose to be as involved with this or as hands off as you want. And I think that you only feel like you have to do it if there's this sense of scarcity that like your business is dependent on it. And what I found is that my business is not dependent on it, not because it doesn't impact it, but because if I don't focus my goal on growing my social media and rather on my studio, then it helps me kind of have a healthy separation of the two. Yeah. Well, that's a great transition into talking about what value you have seen in this um, in this exercise over the past year and a half. What, what do you think that this social media presence has brought to your studio? I mean, is there a direct correlation between, you know, your presence online and then the number of requests you got to, to teach uh, people from, from around the world? And what other benefits have you realized from it? So just on the, the studio side, I would say, honestly, I did get some great clients from TikTok. Um, I think that the reality – I taught like hundreds of lessons last year, you know, because of that. Um, I think, again, it comes back to quantity versus quality. Like I'm – especially because of the like the niche of teaching that I focus on, um, I generally only focus on professionals or – really highly motivated singers. I don't work with children. I only work with teenagers and that's usually like a, I've worked with them and I recognize like what their, their goals are. They're not all trying to become professional singers. It's just a difference in terms of like what their goals are that I think better match just my skill set or the ongoing continuing education that I work on. So the reality is again, looking at like quantity versus quality. If I'm just looking at like teaching whoever comes through my my door, social media absolutely can be a great way to, you know, garner that. I think also too, the expectations of what you present in your content will also change the people that you get. There's a lot of teachers, I think, that want to make their their content catchy or applicable to everyone or extremely dumbed down to the point that they are going to get people who come through their door that maybe are not clients that you that fit your skill set or the desires that you have in a client, you know, relationship. So recognizing that just, you know, not, it's not, for me, it's not all about just gathering as many clients as I can. It's really about finding the clients that work well with me. And so social media in that way is incredibly helpful. Um, 
I absolutely admit that one, it's connected me with so many other industry professionals. So, you know, I get asked to do podcasts and webinars and lives and, uh, you know, different work, work on different committees or, or speak on different topics at different, you know, symposiums or whatever it is. So in that way, it was incredibly helpful because I was able to meet all these people, especially with people being more online, I think this last year with their businesses, uh, it just lent itself to more interactions. Yeah. I love, I love this very balanced view that you have of the role that social media plays in your life. It's an, it's an outlet for your curiosity, for your intellectual explorations, for your scientific interests. You're not, you're not being inauthentic in any way. And you're very realistic about what it's bringing to you and to your studio and how much time you want it to consume in your life. So such a, such a great, healthy approach. Um, Thank you so much for your time today. I know that you are in tremendous demand and we feel very lucky to have snagged you. Uh, let me close with just our, our our traditional question for teachers that we have on the Duet Partner podcast. Who was one of the most influential teachers in your life and what made them so special? Oh, I think I can't neglect my grandparents. Like they mm. were so formative in just my early years and helping me understand why being a musician was so important, not only to my life, but to like my heart and to the life that I want to lead and how music really is that inescapable connection between all of humanity and that it just continues to connect us in ways that words cannot. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Malia. Thanks again for your time today. Thank you. Thank you.